Hey there, this is Robert Leeshock, best known for playing Liam Kincaid on Gene Roddenberry's Earth Final Conflict, and you're listening to Genretainment. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Genretainment here at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks and Julie, and today we are speaking to director Charles Wilkinson, who, besides directing for Highlander the series and many other excellent projects, has also written the book The Working Director, How to Arrive, Survive, and Thrive in the Director's Chair. He tells us about his experiences working on Highlander and other projects, his book The Working Director, the challenges facing the film industry currently in Vancouver, and also he discusses his award-winning documentary, Peace Out. Now, before we start the interview, we wanted to point out that the music that you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality On Demand. It was a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. You can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now let's get started with our featured interview for today with director Charles Wilkinson. In the end, there can be only one. May it be Duncan McLeod, the Highlander. You're listening to Genre Entertainment, and this is Marks and Julie. And today we are speaking with the director and author Charles Wilkinson about his book, The Working Film Director How to Arrive, Survive, and Thrive in the Director's Chair. Hi, Charles. Thanks for taking some time to speak with us. Can you tell us a little bit about your book and what it offers to filmmakers? Sure. Uh, hi, Marks. Hi, Julie. Thanks for, for having me on. What I've noticed, uh, I know quite a few directors, I've worked with a lot of directors, and, and uh, what I've noticed over time is that for the vast majority of, of directors, we, we are working directors as opposed to the very small handful of directors who are, you know, A directors who command $200 million budgets and so forth. Uh, but for the rest of us, the thing that keeps us working, I mean, you have to assume a certain level of intelligence and, and talent and stuff like that, but there's lots of people like that. The thing that keeps one person working and another person not working is not necessarily your level of talent. It's also uh, very much dependent on the other stuff, how well you handle yourself on set, the way that you get along with people, how you just how professional that you are about doing the job. And I don't mean putting, you know, where to put the camera necessarily. I mean more procedural stuff. And I, I noticed that there was really nothing written on that subject. And I and my colleagues, we find that stuff out by very, very painful experience. And so uh, that's what really uh, made me think that writing a book like this might have some value. I like how you mentioned that about conducting yourself on set. I know that, you know, Marks and I have done casting for several productions. And, and it's amazing how you can have an actor come in that you can tell has some raw talent. But... You know, you just you just want to tell, especially, you know, younger and you're still figuring it out. It's like, OK, when you have an appointment, show up on time. If you get your sides, show up yeah. prepared, yeah. you know, look someone in the eye, shake their hands, introduce yourself, it, it, conduct it like you would any other business. I think sometimes people lose sight of the fact that as cool a job as it is to be on on any capacity on a, on a production that, you know, it is a place of business. It's a workplace. <laughs> oh, that, that's really an excellent point. It, it, it is. And people who do it for any length of time, the glamour tends to fade. It really <laughs> does. And, and then you just really appreciate it when people act in a professional manner. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing that, you know, kind of freaked me out a lot is that there are about a billion unwritten rules, and you can alienate people very easily by, by breaking those rules. So it's kind of neat to know what they are. And, you know, we, we tend to share information with each other, but it's good to, to, to talk about these things because these are the, the things that will make or break you in, in, in this business. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I know that, you know, you're being very candid and, and we were kind of uh, enjoying the fact that in chapter one, you deal out some tough love <laughs> about the yeah. dream of being a director. So can you talk a little bit about that, please? Sure. Um, you know, I've, I've taught off and on at, at film schools. Um, and what I notice is that I, I conduct my own uh, little poll at the beginning of, of every every class. What percentage of people want to be directors? And the average is 85 percent. 
And by the time we get to the end of the course, it usually is down to like 15%, and that's still very high. And of the <laughs> ones who go on to actually direct, uh, frequently, none of them do. Um, so, you know, everybody has this idea that, that you should be a director. You should, you know, I mean, in our culture, we have these great warriors like Quentin Tarantino and, and Guy Ritchie and people like that. And yeah, it'd be really cool to be famous and have people return your calls and stuff. But what I've found is, is that very few people have the aptitude to be even just a, um, a relatively low level working director. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it takes a kind of aptitude and what I've noticed with, with students in particular, and also some peers, is that it's really depressing to work away for, you know, 10 years and find out that you don't really have the aptitude for doing a certain job. And in reality, you'd be much happier doing something else. So I thought it would be a really good idea in the book to try and, I think I refer to it as the Pepsi challenge, to, to challenge yourself to really ask frank and honest questions about yourself to see if if you really do have aptitude for being a director and it doesn't mean are you intelligent or good looking or personable or any of those things it doesn't it doesn't reflect at all on your value as a human being i mean some directors i know some excellent directors are really quite unpleasant people so it doesn't mean that you're in any way cool it just means that you have this really weird sort of skill set that that makes you someone who could possibly be a director so that i try and get through that stuff in the beginning of the book uh, just as a as a public service so that you don't waste 10 years of your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that I found that in our experience, everybody says they want to be the director or the producer or the actor or the writer because they feel like, you know, those are the only jobs they know about. And they don't realize that, you know, it. I joke that it takes a village to raise a child, but it takes about a mid-sized city to make a, a film project. <laughs> and yes. everybody has a very specific job to do and if someone drops the ball on even something they think might be a small job because there's no such thing, it's noticeable. Oh, absolutely. The chain is only as strong as its, its weakest link. I always remember something J.D. Salinger said in one of his uh, short stories. Um, uh, it was Franny and Zoe, actually, a novel, um, where Franny was talking about some network executive that he knew that wasn't very good ne network executive. But he visited the guy in his home and he had a basement full of power tools. His hobby was building cabinets and it just depressed him all to hell. The idea that this guy would have made an excellent cabinet maker, but he's a terrible network executive. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, you know how good you feel when you, you're a round peg in a round hole and, and, you know, everybody wants to direct, everybody wants to produce, everybody wants to be the big star. But, you know, unless that's what you're suited for, you're probably not going to be very happy. So you're, you're absolutely right that, that, that this business, like many businesses, but more so than most businesses, has got a ton of uh, little nooks and crannies where people spend their lives incredibly happily. Like I, for example, love sound editing. When, when I sound edit, I'm, I'm just, I couldn't be happier. If all those tiny little squeaks and squawks and bumps and groans and stuff, I just, I'm happy doing it. And so, and I, I have worked a lot, especially in the early times as a sound editor. So that's not a glamorous job at all. It's not even a very well paid job, but I'm just happy doing it, you know? Yeah. Now there is some hope, I hope. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, that'll be such a downer. <laughs> no, see, we started at the low so that we can yes, work our way up. Good strategy. <laughs> uh, uh, do you feel that it's easier or harder for new filmmakers to become working directors? I think that, and I hope this comes across in the book, because you're right, we were just being really depressing there, but I hope it comes across that I think that this is uh, the best time that there's ever been to become a director because the um, entry level is so low, the bar is, is so low now with respect to being able to green light a project. The only thing that makes, in my opinion, a, a, a really good filmmaker is someone who has a good story and the passion and the power and the skill to tell it. And now if you have those things, with a very small amount of money, you can go out and make a movie that will attract a lot of attention and by attracting the attention, you're going to get a job. You're going to get a movie. You're going to move up. When I first started, everything was shot on 35 millimeter film. Do you have any idea how expensive it was <laughs> even just a short film? You know, it was $50,000, you know, that kind of thing. And now you can borrow the equipment to make a feature movie. Uh -huh. I did that a couple of years ago. We made a feature movie for almost nothing. And what was that feature movie? 
piece out. It's a, a theatrical documentary. And I mean, really, we financed it just, you know, with our Visa card and, and shot it with HDSLRs and so forth. And uh, it went on to win awards all around the world. It's just getting released. I'm going to plug it now. It's getting released on iTunes for Earth Day. It's, you know, sold to network television and it, it's just done super well. And it, the budget was just, you know, credit cards. So that's possible. And we've just done another one. We're just in post right now on another one that cost a little bit more than that. But we based this new one that we're doing on the success that we had with the last one. So I think it's much easier than it ever was before. All you need is, you know, some skill, some talent and a, and a good idea and an and ability to tell a story mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of luck <laughs> and a mom with a credit card. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, you know, you mentioned that the equipment is so much more accessible now. Not only has it come down in price, but the technology is easier to work with. And, and like you said, you can you can uh, kind of beg, borrow and steal from your friends and meet up with people. And we've always kind of partnered that with the idea that now we have the Internet where it's it's very much wide open and you don't have to get a theater. You can put it out on the Internet now since web series are a growing field right now, how do you feel about the future of, of web series? And we weren't sure if we got the impression of your book that you thought there was much lucrative money in the field, or if you want to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Th- th- that's something I think you'll find that all working directors tend to focus on is money, just because it's such a competitive field. And if you're not directing, you're driving a cab or delivering pizzas and you want to do the the first one and not the second one. So we always struggle to monetize the work. Um, and I mean, most working directors don't make a fortune. It's just you, you make a living and that, that's enough. But web series, I mean, they generally don't, they haven't found a way to monetize them yet. Um, people are, are, are struggling to do it. And the really successful ones get, you know, banners and stuff like that. But I'm not sure I see the way through the, 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 the way that people are monetizing their careers as directors now is still relatively conventional. Yes, it's way easier to start. The bar is much lower. The the equipment and all that is much more accessible. But what you're still trying to do is win festivals. That That's the way that works today. You, you win festivals, you attract attention, you make television sales, and uh, people who are looking for directing talent notice you. That, that's what's working now in terms of monetizing your career. But um, if you turn out a successful web series, you're still going to get people who are possibly more who, who than you would by going the festival route. who are going to see your work and be really impressed by you. I mean, we all know the, the success stories for like Second Life, for example. That, that was wonderful how they parlayed that into an actual TV series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You directed multiple episodes of one of our favorite TV shows. Yes. Uh, Highlander, the series. Yeah. Uh, Yes, I did. <laughs> we love that. <laughs> uh, can, can, I, I love that show. <laughs> Actually, when Marks and I started dating, I didn't have cable, so he would record the uh, episodes for me on VHS so I could actually watch them. <laughs> <laughs> You're dating yourself. <laughs> uh, well, that was better than Roses. <laughs> yes. that's, that's, that's romantic, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, can you tell us a little bit about how you first landed that directing gig? Um, that one was uh, kind of, I mean, everything's lucky. It's all kind of based on luck. Um, I had done, uh, let's see, well, I did a, a documentary film as I, before I graduated from Simon Fraser Film School. Um, and then I, I pushed really hard and I found a way to make a feature movie kind of secretly that nobody knew that we were making with a budget for a documentary they thought we were spending on that. And and we did. We made a good documentary, but we also made a feature. A feature wasn't very good, but it started getting me noticed. And uh, then I got hired to do another feature, which turned out okay, and it certainly did business. Then I got uh, to finance another feature movie. Once I'd done that one, those three, I had an agent by that time, and the agent called me up and said, hey, the Highlander folks are hiring directors. Would you like to do some episodes? Should I put you up for it? I said, sure. Are you kidding? I want to find out where the sword comes from. And <laughs> and, and so uh, they put me up for it, and I went and interviewed. And it was a tough interview. It was a really tough interview. Um, they were a very demanding group, as you can tell by you know the quality of the series. And... They said things to me like, I'll never forget, they said to me, uh, right after they hired me, uh, Bill Panzer, the executive producer of the show, he and I went for a walk, and he said, I'll tell you what, kid, I don't care if you break every camera on the set, just don't be boring. (laughs) That sounds like Stella Adler, don't be boring. (laughs) And I thought, hey, I'm home. Uh, 
Those guys, I mean, honestly, um, you had to fight for, for what you got. The line producer was Brent Carl Claxon, who became a really dear friend later on. But he was a tough, tough guy to work for. He'd say things like you'd ask for a crane and he'd say, cranes are an endangered species on this series. He was really nutty, but, but uh, you know, I fought him on the crane issue, for example, for my first episode. And it was a tough fight, but he he gave in. And afterwards, he came to me, he said, you know what? That was right. What you did was right. It was an amazing use of the crane. So anytime you want a crane, you just let me know. That's the kind of people that they were. Adrian Paul was a really, really gifted man. I, I just never understood why he didn't get cast as James Bond, for example. He would have made an excellent James Bond. He's, he's a terrific actor and a really decent guy. He taught me a ton about, about uh, work. He's, a, he's really a great so where, where do they hide that sword? I, yeah, there's one. He had a short denim jacket and pull. That's my favorite one. He had a denim jacket and pulls his sword out. <laughs> uh, you know what? It, what can I say? It's the movies. I, 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 I remember I, I did an action movie here called called Crashed. It was a fairly large budget picture, and the female lead. We went into a meeting with the armorer to choose a gun for her because she was like this ass kicking cop, undercover cop. And the entire movie took place in one night, and she was wearing this skin tight cocktail gown that was kind of high cut and low cut on the other end and and so she, you know, the gun she picked was a desert eagle oh <laughs> a desert eagle is like about as large as a subaru i mean where was she gonna put it right and yet that's what she carried you know and every once in a while she'd whip it out and start shooting well whip it out from where right? <laughs> the prop guy handed it to her evidently you know so uh, that's I, great. I never found out where the sword came from uh, nobody knows that the, the in fact, that, that was, if I can say something slightly negative about the show, that was the one thing that I think many of us were a little frustrated about with that show is that that it could have gone on forever, but they, there wasn't enough thought at the very highest level put into the real meaning of the series. Like, why can there only be one? Why? Yeah. Like, what does it mean? There can be only one. How come? Who said? Like, it's not as if that's those are stupid questions or stupid statements, but like it needed to get worked out. I, I was really sorry. Um, they, they, they hired me to do um, a spec script for the third feature. I think the third feature. And then at the same time, the TV guys, uh, th that was Bill Panzer, the exec in Los Angeles. Then the TV guys wanted me to come to Paris and do some episodes. And Bill said, why don't you go do the episodes and come back and write it? And I did. And when I came back, they were already moved on to someone else. And I was always sorry about that because I had some ideas about how to make it, how to make the story make complete sense. It could have gone on forever. We could still be doing Highlanders. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> I like how you think because, yeah, we, we really, we really loved that show. And uh, I know I loved Duncan McLeod, and I loved Mythos. Peter Wingfield is Mythos as well. That that was always. I thought there was so much you could. He's five thousand years old. There's a lot you could do with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I know Adrian was quite frustrated sometimes that he really wanted to to explore that. How what a curse immortality would be. Yeah, like the like the song that you know, who wants to live forever? You know, I mean, yeah. it's it 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 sounds great for the first five seconds, but you're right. You know, and and. Yeah. I'm sure that you and Adrian Paul had some really good ideas. <laughs> oh, well, Adrian sure did. You know, it's it's interesting, though, back to the directing part of that. I was so lucky on that show that the first day that I arrived for prep on my first episode, the first AD, a, a guy named James Marshall, he was my first AD. You alternate first ADs when you do episodic because you alternate directing episodes. They're always shooting, so I'm doing the next one while there's one being shot and so on. And James just... He said, okay, we're going to spend an hour talking. So we just went walking and talking. He said, here's how it works here. Here's what the rules are. And he told me where all the landmines are. He said, okay, this guy, if you do this, it's going to piss him off like crazy. If, if this guy, that, and, and, and do this. And, and he just, he really gave me the skinny on, on what the politics were. At that time, Adrian was going through some contract issues with the company. And so there was a little tension there. He told me how to deal with that. James just did the greatest favor to me, and we worked together. I got him to come in AD features for me after, because he just told me where the landmines were. And that's really behind why I wrote the book. I wanted to do, to pass that on, like to pay that forward, to say where the landmines are. And I believe that I have said where tons of landmines are. You know, one of the Highlander guys said to me one time, as I was about to get upset about something that really turned out to be completely inconsequential, he said, you know, it was Ken Gord. Ken Gord was one of the producers. He was an amazing man. Uh, still is. Um, he said, you know, in Hollywood, in this business, 
if somebody isn't your friend, they're your enemy. <laughs> and I thought, oh, <laughs> gee, I better be careful. And it's really true. You know, that nobody's neutral. They either love you or they hate you. And it's really easy to get them to hate you inadvertently, you know? Uh -huh. so, yeah. I don't mean to overstate, you know, how paranoid one should be, but one certainly needs to be careful. And the guys that work the longest and, and the most successfully tend to, to not make too many of those mistakes. Uh -huh. Now, I'm wondering from a directing standpoint, since every episode of Highlighter has a sword fight, yes. uh, how, how difficult was it to coordinate those and what kind of time frame would it take to shoot it? Well, we got, like, you know, Princess Bride, I think they had two weeks to shoot their sword fight. That was a fact that we always dredged up. We practiced the sword fight. Uh, we choreographed it. Uh, F. Ron McCash was the sword man. Brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, just so good at, at, at uh, sword fighting and all kinds of combat. He would get together with me and Adrian and the star, uh, you know, the visiting star that he was going to sword fight. And he would help us to coordinate how the fight should go, like to choreograph it. Like it's so easy to think, well, they just fight. And that's what it often says in the script. You know, the Highlander, you know, somebody lunges up with a sword, they fight. That's it. So <laughs> we have to actually write the story of the fight, like that he does this, then the Highlander pushes back, and then he runs around a corner, and then he jumps up on this. Like it's quite complex to do. The writing of a fight is something most people don't realize is, is a fairly complex job. Then we'd walk it through and we'd, we'd rehearse it for the entire time that we were shooting the episode. Whenever we had an hour to spare, uh, half an hour to spare, if we were rigging something complex, we'd uh, Bron would come and drag us off and we'd rehearse the fight until we got it really good. And then, and then we'd shoot. And it would normally take, they'd give us three or four hours to shoot those sword fights, not much more than that. So, wow. yeah, we really had to have it right. I love doing it. And those guys actually, they taught me how to choreograph a fight. Um, and they taught me how to shoot a fight because when I see how students approach shooting a fight or inexperienced filmmakers, they take days to do a fight. At, at Highlander, you do an excellent sword fight in three or four hours, and it's just in the way that one approaches it, technically, how you how you essentially block the scene. Like it, it's a combination of how you block the scene, which is to say the relationship between the camera and the actors and the camera moves, and also how you choreograph the scene. If you can get those two things to dance, with the knowledge that you've only got three or four hours to shoot, you can do something amazing that looks like it took days to shoot. And that's what those guys taught me. Yeah, that's something that's been missing for many years in television with, you know, the good sword fights. It's, it's hard yeah. to get an excuse to have a good sword fight on TV. Yeah. Well, I guess Revolution, <laughs> Revolution has them now. now. Yeah. I don't think they're as good as Highlander. No, uh -uh, not quite as good. <laughs> no, well, the, the Highlander ones, what I really liked about them is that they allowed them to be really bloody without being gory. They yeah. weren't they wasn't vicarious violence where people got limbs cut off. But, you know, frequently, you know, somebody would pommel Adrian in the face, you know, Duncan McLeod with with the palm of their sword. And he'd come away with blood trickling down his face. And it was just it was brutal and raw, but it was also quite beautiful. So many of the sword fights that you see are so sort of gentlemanly. And, and anybody who's ever held a sword in their hand knows that there's nothing gentlemanly about fighting with a sword. It's scary. <laughs> it really is, even when they're dulled and not sharpened. I mean, you know, it's still a big, heavy metal object swinging at people's bodies and heads. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's, <laughs> you got to be careful. <laughs> we, we actually had a, a couple of injuries in filming the Highlander sword fights, not serious ones, but they could have been. Yeah. Um, just where stuff, I mean, the volume gets turned up, you know, adrenaline starts to flow. And before you know it, you know, it doesn't seem like play anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. What was your favorite episode that you directed? I liked Courage the best. Um, and Courage was the one that won the awards. Courage was the one with um, John Piper Ferguson. He was a drug addict. And he caused the bus crash at the beginning. And uh, he was going through time being an opium addict and, and so forth. It was, um, it was interesting, the first one that I did. Piper was just fantastic. He's an incredible actor. So that, that, I like that one the best. But I also, I loved working in Paris, even though the work that I did there, I didn't think it turned out particularly well. Uh, the stories weren't, weren't as good, but it was awesome to live in Paris, I have to say. That's yeah. Right. yeah. I got to film the Eiffel Tower. I mean, we had uh, uh, the big blow-off with the Eiffel Tower in the background. And you had mentioned earlier, uh, going back to, you said you managed to win the fight to get the crane for your first episode. Do you remember, uh, or can you relate uh, what scene and what, episode that was that you used that crane shot for 
Yes, it was encouraging. It was at the very end, uh, after a really brutal sword fight. I, I like that fight a lot, uh, where Duncan kills uh, uh, Colm McLeod, Colm, I can't remember his last name, uh, the John Piper Ferguson character, in an underground car park that where um, John Piper had been chasing him around with a van, trying to crush him with a van. And they had their sword fight. It was a very dirty fight. And, of course, Adrian finally got it together and killed him and what we started very low and close on adrian's face because after the the quickening is that what they called it I think? yeah uh-huh. yes. yeah yep. yeah <laughs> we started close on his face and he felt really bad about it and and the producers allowed me to have him feel really bad about it because he loved colin and so we start very very close on his face and then we come up and 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 we just leave him just small and alone in this dirty underground car park and it was not triumphant at all it was it was speaking much more to the tragedy that immortality would be. It was beautiful. I like that. Yeah, there was, it was fantasy, but there's a lot of honesty in it because, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, oh, this is so great. It's so cool. We get to take somebody's head off. <laughs> we get to live yeah. forever. It was, it was yeah. a, a much more honest portrayal of, of what that life would really be like, I think. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. I mean, it's hard to talk about that in the context of, you know, a TV show because it, it is, after all, light entertainment. But still, you try to make it have meaning for people. And sometimes it really did shine through on that show. You know, speaking of cranes, that, that, that's something else I talk in the book at, at some length about, about the toys that, that are at the director's disposal from time to time. And what I've noticed with, with young filmmakers, and I know I was exactly the same, you tend to fantasize about having big stuff like cranes and trains and planes and and automobiles and stuff because they're fun toys and you kind of associate those with you know big time directors Um, but what I I found and and I I speak about this at some length in in the book is that there's protocols for for using that gear and there's ways to learn how to use it effectively and if you're not using it effectively that's just a complete waste of time and frequently the footage you get from it is unusable Um, it's very important to learn to use those pieces of gear correctly and there's ways to learn it there's shortcuts like the crews trained me how to use cranes and because I'm, I'm relatively open on set and I take advice from everybody because I think that a lot of people have been doing it for a lot longer than I have uh, at least when I was a kid that was the case um, that, that people would train me and they'd say hey for example the crew the crews would often come to me and say Hey boss, they, they they say that sometimes. They say we got the crane, the big Chapman crane. Um, you know, you're paying for it for one day a week, but um, think you'll be using it today. And I went, well, I don't know, uh, maybe. And they said, tell you what, we'll build it up for you, and it won't cost anything. And if you get ahead and want to use it, it'll already be there. Hmm. Well, that means I get to use it, right? So uh, then, you know, I'm just racking my brains to think: is there some is there some really good thing that's going to tell the story more effectively that I can use that piece of gear for? I come up with it, I talk to the producer, they go, hey, go for it. Often as, as not, they wouldn't even charge us for it. And I'd get these great swooping shots that would really connect things in, in, in space you otherwise wouldn't connect. But the, the very fact that I was using the piece of gear was owing to that I had a good relationship with the crew and they had built it for me. They didn't have to, they could just sit in the truck. You know, the, the building a crane is a lot of work, but because we had a good relationship and they knew how much I valued the work that they brought, to, to this, I felt that we were all collaborating on, on the same piece of work, then they would bend over backwards. And to get that kind of cooperation from a crew, that really makes a difference between, you know, excellent production and average stuff. It really does. Or yeah. Can. Mm-hmm. One more Highlander question. Yeah. <laughs> we'll move on. Uh, we're, we're big fans of Highlander, can you tell? <laughs> you don't have to apologize. I love that show. <laughs> A lot of times we ask people if they have a funny story from set. I'm just yeah. curious if there's a funny Highlander story you might might like to share. Uh, let me think. Um, oh well, this one isn't really funny. Uh, I'm gee, I wish I wish you'd give me some notice because I'm sure I could have thought something really funny. <laughs> well, what comes to mind? Well, one that came to mind was I remember one time there were somebody made a T-shirt. Uh, uh, for uh, Colin McLeod, and it was the the motto that they wanted to have for the show was "No more sheepless nights." <laughs> I thought that was that was pretty cool, but um, th- th- there was there was something else that happened. That was, oh yeah, there was one thing that happened that wasn't funny, but it was really really interesting. I was working with uh, Wolfgang. Oh gosh, can't remember his last name. He was one of the the two guys that were accused and they were going to be executed in A Few Good Men, the Jack Nicholson film. Remember the black guy? 
Yeah. One of the soldiers, that guy was the lead on on Brothers in Arms, an episode that I did, and he got in. He was a really good actor. I loved working with him. He got this idea into his head that there was a romantic relationship between he and the female lead in the sh- in this particular episode, and that's why he was feeling jealous, etc., etc., etc. And he he I couldn't dislodge that idea from his head. I didn't think it was a good idea at all. But I very quickly realized that he felt so strongly about it that it was bleeding over into his performance and was giving us something really interesting. So I went with it. And I didn't have time to talk to the, to the producers about it. Um, so, you know, he was referring in his dialogue to things that had happened between them. And it was quite emotional. It was pretty interesting. And then he killed her, right? He shot her at point blank range. So I got a call from uh, Ken, the, the producer, the next day. And he said, hey, saw the dailies. Guys in California saw the dailies. What's going on? Like you were <laughs> seen. And they didn't like it when you did that. <laughs> so I said to Ken, well, I said, first of all, it's totally cuttable because it was. And I fully anticipate that I'm going to cut that one when I do my edit of it. But I said it put him in the right space to deliver an amazing performance. And Ken thought about it for a minute and he said, good answer. And we moved on. <laughs> so. That's the kind of answer you want to have ready when you do stuff like changing the script. <laughs> well, sure, you know, I mean, it could have gone either way. You never know unless you take a shot, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, and that's another thing I talk about in, in in the book is that invariably, if you're a storyteller, and if you, that's part of having aptitude to be a, a director is that you are a storyteller, you're going to have thoughts about the story you're being asked to tell from time to time, i.e. all the time. And that's the easiest source of conflict between directors, working directors and producers is story issues. And frequently there's no resolution for it and you can win the battle and lose the war. And that's one of the, the, the quickest ways of killing your career is being argumentative to, to argumentative about story. On the other hand, it's also an easy way of killing your career to not be argumentative enough. So you just let go whatever, you know, just roll over all the time. Um, that's a tough one. To, to, to know how hard to fight for story elements um, because some story stuff just doesn't work and you know that you know it's not going to work and you know that you can do it much better so what do I do do I shoot it both ways well you often don't have the resources to do that in time and, and, and so forth so that that's a really tough call that's the biggest thing that most directors thread is, is conflict over story mm-hmm. you know because if the story doesn't make sense and sometimes it doesn't you know like then it's so depressing because you know that they're going to be fixing it in the editing room. Well, why don't I just shoot it right? <laughs> right? How about That's we do an that? excellent question. <laughs> yeah. So the story... The time... Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, at the same time, uh, I understand. You know, producers often will be working with a script for months and they, they you know, they really suffer for it. And and there's all this cut and paste that goes on in the writing process. And sometimes things slip through. So uh, it's not like anybody has malicious intent. I think we're all pretty much on the same page all the time. It's just that sometimes they're very wary of a director wanting to impose their their stamp on the show. And, and, and so they'll be very hesitant to allow changes. And yet sometimes you have to change stuff or else it will just be senseless. Yeah. So... And sometimes you run up against a brick wall. And so you try and shoot something that nobody really understands what it is that you're doing. They don't even realize that you've shot something because you fit it into something else. But you know in the editing room it's going to save your life. So that kind of stuff is pretty tricky. So in your experience, the uh, issues over storyline are a bit more of a minefield than even budgetary concerns, huh? Way more. Way more. <laughs> Because budget, I mean, you usually work out a modus vivendi with with the production manager, and and you know you early on figure out if you need to argue with them or if they're going to be on your side or whatever. Um, and usually the AD, the first AD, is your ally in that. Not always, but but usually. But no, no, the story stuff, that's just between you and and here's the thing: the director's caught between a rock and a hard place because very frequently actors will come to you and say, "I can't say this." You know, a Martian wouldn't talk this way. <laughs> I actually had people say that to me. Um, and then you go to the producer and the producer goes, nope, shoot it like it is. And I actually had to say to one actress one time, we were doing a television movie for CBS, I think. And there was there was a scene and I'd just been dreading shooting it because it was stupid. And I talked to the producers and they were just adamant. No, shoot it like it is. 
and I couldn't get any any movement from them at all. And so we were very tired the night we had to do it. And it was a big, it was, a maid was chasing somebody around a table with a knife and it just didn't make any sense. And she was, basically what it was, she was, she had to explain the whole plot of the movie as she was chasing the protagonist around with the, with the knife. You know, it's one of those things like, okay, well, what you didn't realize was the way that I killed so-and-so. I mean, honest to God, it was just stupid. <laughs> And, exposition and so, on the run. <laughs> it was exposition on the run, exactly. It was awful. And so so I finally went to, it was Jennifer Clement. She's just a delightful actress. I, I love working with her. And she said, I, I said to her, Jennifer, I'm sorry. I just, I got nothing for you here. This scene sucks. You know it. I know it. All I can say is please just do it the way that it's written. And, and I promise I'll do everything I can to fix it in post. Like, let's just make the best of it because <laughs> I, I can't get anything for you on this. I just can't. And she said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do the best I can. And you know what? We didn't cut the scene. She did a great job. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I was wrong. She, her talent just pulled it off. So you get tired, you sometimes have bad judgment, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and there's a big difference between being a director on television versus film, right? I don't think people realize that who are in film. Well, there is, although it's interesting. I, you know, I have I have a number of friends who work at the the very top of the food chain in Hollywood, and the pressures on directors in in film now, unless you're at the two hundred million dollar budget level, that used to be a joke, right? It isn't anymore. But <laughs> unless you're at that level, you know, people consider thirty million dollars to be really low budget, and they really have to scramble, and that means that somebody on the show it's going to be either the dp or, or the director or possibly the ad has really ha got to have a keen sense of how to organize things otherwise you're not going to get it shot you know you you have a like blocking is a place where there's tremendous potential for conflict with the actors i mentioned that the stories where you have conflict with the producers well where you have conflict with the actors is over blocking where they say i wouldn't sit in this chair <laughs> Well, what do you do with that, right? And, and there's all kinds of tricks for getting them to do what you need them to do. Um, but boy, you can waste hours arguing with actors about, you know, okay, go over to the window and sit down and pick up the phone. Why? Well, because that's where the light is. Why? It's just like, uh, so there's ways, of, there's ways of getting through that and getting around that. But in film, um, it used to be a lot less critical because you could spend the time to, to, to talk things over. But the, even, even in film now, it's becoming, the time is becoming a lot shorter. Now, what are some of the tricks of the trade? Um, you've talked a little bit about dealing with producers of story. Are there any inside secrets on uh, directing actors? Oh, absolutely. And this is like, this sounds so lame. I, I know you're going to think this is like really dumb, but this is the kind of stuff that makes the difference between getting your day and not getting your day. What what I always do, and this is, I go in, I can't explain it in as great a detail here as, as I do in the book because it's, you know, fairly detailed. But when I plan a scene in, in prep, I, I make drawings and I, I decide where everybody's going to go. I do all the blocking in prep. So when we arrive on set, I can find a way of encouraging the actors to do what I want them to do without making it seem like I'm pushing them around. The way that I do that, because it's really shitty when you hear somebody, I'm sorry, I guess I probably can't talk like that on your video. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> We've had worse. <laughs> okay. Good. Um, it, you know, it's terrible. If you walk onto the set, you start blocking a scene, you say, okay, you go here and then you stand here and then you walk over here. That's a terrible way to direct. The actors get really resentful. They feel like what Hitchcock called them, meat puppets, you know, mm -hmm. stand here, talk, right? So the, you, you want to make it seem a lot more respectful than that I, I, because I do, I respect act, actors enormously. Um, so the way, the, the, the best trick that I have for that is when I plan the scene and plan the blocking, I'll design the set, which is not to say I do the designer's work, but I'll say where the tables and chairs and knives and forks go where the telephone is. If this is going to be a scene where the person talks on the telephone, I want to know where that telephone's going to be and I want to have it fit into the plan that I have for the way that I want to cover the scene. So if I if I communicate all that, first of all, if I work it out properly, then I communicate it with the art department. When I come to the set in the morning, to that particular set, all of the furniture is going to be exactly where I said it should be and I always confirm that it is, well then, when, when we turn the actors loose on the set and say, okay, go ahead, just run the scene. I never give them any more direction than that. I say, let's run the scene, see how it goes. Well, they'll go over to the window and talk on the phone. The reason is, is because that's where the phone is. And the reason the phone's there is because I put it there. <laughs>
right? It's a, no, it's a magic trick. It sounds so dumb, but it's such a magic trick. You don't have to coerce anybody. You don't have to push them around. And that's what a director's job is, is to, is to, is to visualize the entire thing and have it work out like that. I mean, we shouldn't be quarreling about stuff like this. We should be quarreling about the big stuff. How do I feel about this? You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you basically, I mean, you st- really start directing them before they show up on the set because you're Absolutely. you're controlling the environment to make it more conducive for what you're wanting. Absolutely, I, I did a show once with Patricia Callenberg. She's a delightful actress from the, from the U.S. It was a plane crash movie in the Rockies. It was a lot of fun. And we worked together. We had a great working relationship. And at the wrap party, we'd all been, you know, having a couple of glasses of wine. She gave me this super huge compliment. She said, Charles, you're the most manipulative person I've ever worked with. (laughs) (laughs) And that was her compliment. Jeez. (laughs) But you used your powers for good instead of evil. (laughs) Evil, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. No, there's a fair amount of manipulation. Uh, I mean, obviously, you have a vision for what you want to do, and you care about it. You care passionately about it. And, you know, somebody who walks onto the set who hasn't given it a moment's thought, why should I be you know, debating about, oh, I feel like sitting over here? You know, if I design a set that, that works right, they'll be comfortable doing what they have to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Acting feng shui. Take it from him. <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, I know that sounds very, very manipulative. I, I, I also want to say that that I do um, just ask them to run it, and I tend to shoot, uh, t- to design very complex uh, full scene masters, which is something that, that students almost never want to do. They always want to go cut, 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 because they see movies that have been cut up, not realizing that they've been shot with big full scene master coverage, and then they've been cut up in post. But that, that's a terrible way to approach filmmaking. The way that actors love to, to approach filmmaking is to shoot the scene, to shoot a master, have them moving, have the cameras moving, everything in motion and to to tell the story of the scene. I mean, I watch students making films where they'll go, uh, okay, camera rolling um, and action. I love you. Cut. How the hell (laughs) can you like that, right? It just, it it doesn't work that way. You've got to work, you've got to build up to it and stuff. So I, I love to give the actors just their head and say, you interpret this scene, show me what you've got. And they do. They'll, 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 we'll work it and we'll work it. And what I do now, because I've gained a fair amount of technical proficiency o- over time, um, that, and also I do so much of the work in prep, that I'll go on to the set, um, we'll block the scene, it usually goes very, very smoothly, and it'll happen very quickly. One or two run-throughs, put down some marks, camera marks, we'll spend a half an hour blocking a complex scene, and then the crew's got the floor, they're lighting, they're setting up their, their dolly track and so forth, and the cast and I will go to the green room or the trailers or whatever, and we'll work on the scene, and we'll find ways of making that scene make sense. And that's where the real work gets done. All the other stuff, you know, where to put the camera and all that stuff, it's important, it's really key, but that's not, to my mind, where the real directing goes. The real directing is sitting in the trailers with the actors saying, okay, why are you saying this? Where's this coming from? And frequently, you'll find that somebody's saying something because the writer wants them to or needs them to, and it's not what they'd be saying, but in fact, it would be something that another person in the scene would be saying. So we just mix it around a little bit. I've had amazingly good luck with producers that they've trusted me to, to just as long as we get the words all said, they're not as concerned about who says them as long as it you know makes sense. And to me, that's where the real magic of the process happens. The guy who taught me the most about that was Michael Bean, you know, the Terminator guy. He, he, we did a picture together, and uh, he just taught me so much about how to work a scene with actors. That was good education. Now, is that, a, in your experience, a common approach with many directors, or is that something that, you know, not every actor is going to be fortunate enough to uh, encounter? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, the industry breaks it down into, you know, technical directors and acting actors directors. They, they, they always talk about that, oh, that person's a real actress director. I know that there are actors, guys like Peter Berg, for example, he is an actor and he's also a a successful director. He spends all his time working with the actors and none of his time on technical. He gives technical to his crew. Um, That that certainly isn't isn't my approach. I think that technical is really important. Um, And so I like to to have a a hand in that at least. But um, some directors tend to be much more actor oriented. But I find often that the, the reason they are is because they're not very fluid with the, the technical stuff. I think it's very important to learn that that stuff. That's why I think film school is such a good idea and to learn how to, you know, 
shoot and 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 uh, edit sound and do locations and all that that, that you'll really understand the process um that that's uh i i think that, that the kind of director that does both is the, the way to be and it also makes you the most happy yeah right. now i'm a graduate from vancouver film school and uh, all right great so we lived up there for a little a little bit and have friends up there uh, so we've heard there's been a lot of buzz recently about the the film industry struggling a little bit in Vancouver compared to how it was just a few years ago. Now, with you being based in Vancouver, we're wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the problem and what filmmakers are trying to do to help improve the industry there. Um, that's a great question, and it's one that's going to get me into a ton of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's been a fair bit of controversy up here about that. I mean, obviously, I have a ton of friends who, who are, are in the, we, we differentiate between Hollywood North and, and the indigenous business here. And uh, I, I have a foot in both camps. And so I don't really have a particular ax to grind, but what some of us, many of us have been saying for years is that, that we need to support each other because the, the service work, which is what we call the work that comes from Hollywood to, to Vancouver, it, it's really dependent upon a lot of factors that are beyond our control. Um, you know, if uh, Carolina or, or um, Louisiana decides to offer a completely unsustainable tax break for the producers, um, we can't match that and the business will go away. So we need to have a really strong indigenous industry here. And that, that plea has largely fallen on deaf ears. And so our indigenous industry is not particularly strong. So when there's a downturn in the service work, um, people just get unemployed. And I see it. I have friends who live on the same block as me, and they're really scared. They're worried that the work will go away and it won't come back. And they've all built their lifestyles. They've got houses. They've got kids. You know, the, the whole thing. So I have enormous sympathy for them. Um, I think we've all been struggling to find business models, and this isn't just Canada. Uh, this is everywhere. I know it's, it's Los Angeles as well. We've all been struggling to find business models that work in, in the age of, of YouTube and, and you know free downloading and stuff like that. And the, I have to say the business model, and I know this doesn't sound quite like the answer to your question, but it is the answer in my mind to the question. Um, the business model that works the best for me is and the one that we're working with right now is that if you can find a way to make interesting content that people want to watch for a low enough budget that the amount of money people will pay to see it will pay for it you're in business it's that simple you can't go on making movies for you know 10 million dollars that gross 2 million dollars you can't do that that's not sustainable and we see that a lot uh, in places well even in, in los angeles most movies don't make a profit the ones that do have to pay for the ones that don't. So uh, I think that for a filmmaker to understand what the value of this element is, that element in the filmmaking process, producers would say to me when I'd ask for a helicopter, they'd say, okay, it's going to cost five grand for the helicopter. That's 5,000 people extra that it's going to put in the theater. Is it going to do that? And that's an excellent question. Will my helicopter shot bring 5,000 extra people into the cinema? Probably <laughs> Well, it seems that, that a lot of it would be out of your control, along with, you know, if, if when the American dollar was so much stronger against the loonie, it made so much more sense. You'd They'd save money going up there to film. But if, if the U.S. dollar slips and the Canadian dollar is stronger, it actually will cost more money than to ship work up there and, and remodel studios and things mm -hmm. like that. And and I would imagine that that would be keeping some of the American productions in the States simply because they're struggling with financial issues as well. For sure. We're seeing the big drain going to Toronto because Toronto decided to go for a, a production tax credit that's just simply unsustainable and they'll have to rescind it. But, you know, the damage is being done right now. The, the, you know, to answer that question, the reason that, that uh, um, you know, Los Angeles productions have been coming to Vancouver so continuously, uh, the reason why Vancouver is such a successful production center is because Vancouver is awesome. 
<laughs> Our crews are absolutely wonderful. They're the best crews. They're, they can compete with any crew on Earth. You can grow up a picture and get the, the top specialists on the planet in Vancouver. Our equipment here, um, I mean, people who know say that our equipment is frequently better than the equipment in Los Angeles, but it certainly is not in any way inferior. So, And also the attitude of people here is wonderful. People are really easy to deal with. Um, if you shoot a, in a neighborhood here, I mean, they shoot in our neighborhood quite frequently. They go around and they paper the houses, but I don't really expect them to. And the paper just says, hey, we're going to be shooting on your street. There's going to be some cars parked. Hope it's okay with you. Call us if it isn't. And nobody ever calls. It's not a thing. In Los Angeles, when you shoot in a neighborhood, somebody will get a restraining order and ask for $10,000 because they can't get their car out of the driveway. And that, that happens all the time. You know, it's not, Los Angeles has not been that friendly an environment to shoot in because people are so litigious. And, and in Canada, we just don't do that, especially in Vancouver. It's very, very laid back. Also, there's really almost no crime here. And people, producers, really love coming here with their families and their kids and stuff. They see it as a safe and really happy and wonderful. Vancouver is a great world city. We have great restaurants and stuff. So it's not just the dollar. And even when the dollar would go down and it was, you know, basically a wash to come here, so many producers love shooting here and they've made so many friends here that they wouldn't think of going elsewhere. But at a certain point, if you're paying this huge premium, to come here you, it's not viable you can't do it and and that's where we see people fleeing to to louisiana and carolina and particularly to toronto so people here are really really concerned about it i think the answer for everyone is to have a strong indigenous uh uh you know a strong local industry yeah that's a better long-term plan yeah, yeah. harder to do though <laughs> it is harder to do yeah it is, but I mean, we can encourage people. Uh, I mean, Quebec is a really classic example of a of a society on this continent that that's done an amazing job of building a, a regional cinema, and their filmmakers work steady. You know, they they do service work as well, and some really cool service work, but they don't have to. You know, yeah. so that that's I think what we're all and you know in Los Angeles as well. I know that filmmakers there were really hurting and they really resented so much of the work coming to Vancouver. And I think in some respects rightly so. It would be neat if we could share the work equally. Something that people in the states often forget though is is that Canada is the largest export market for American film. The American films make more money in Canada than they do in any other country. So, you know, we had an auto we have an auto pact where we basically made a deal where we said, and I talk about this in the book too, where we said, all right, Canada won't manufacture automobiles if you will ma manufacture cars in Canada and hire our workers to do it. That's what the auto pact is, because we're going to buy those cars. And it's the same thing with the movies. What's fair is fair. If we're going to buy the movies, we should get to make some of them. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And that's the deal that we've had, and it's been really fair. It's worked out beautifully for, for many, many years. And people have raised their kids and, and had really wonderful lives doing it. It's just um, directors have not been very successful at penetrating that. They tend to bring the creative with them. Yeah. Now, before we go, we'd like to give you opportunity to let us know about any other upcoming projects besides just a book that you would like to discuss. Shameless plug time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and anything you have that you want to announce? <laughs> I do, as a matter of fact. Gosh, what a coincidence. Um, the project that I'm working on right now, we're, we've just, uh, we'll be fine cut in maybe two days. We're just nitpicking right now. It's called Oil Sands Karaoke. Oh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> That's what it's about. It's it's amazing. Um, it's, uh, I, I don't know what to say about it. It's, it's, it's Oil Sands Karaoke. We spent the summer and fall up in Fort McMurray in the heart of the oil sands filming a karaoke contest and filming people out at work in the oil sands. And it's a, I guess people are going to say it's an environmental movie because it's in the oil sands and that project is so controversial, but we hardly say anything about the environment uh, other than, I mean, I don't say a thing. Uh, the, the workers have a few comments that they make, but they mostly talk about why they're there and what some of their, their constraints are, what drives them to do what they do. And this really interesting picture emerges. Plus, they sing, and we, we follow five singers from beginning to end in the contest. It's nothing like American Idol. It's much more thoughtful than that. But the, the people that we chose are absolutely adorable. Can I say that about Will Sands workers? Absolutely. Sure. Why not? <laughs> Honestly, wait till you see them. I mean, they're just adorable. Like, there's one, 
a young woman, uh, Brandy, she's, you know, just 20 and she's a small little slip of a thing. And she's just as pretty as you could possibly imagine. She's full blood Cree. And she had a, a really difficult early life, lost a parent early. Um, and she was headed straight for the inner city, the whole, I mean, you know, the story that happens to First Nations people. But she got training as a heavy equipment operator. And now she drives one of those gigantic haul trucks. And she's really found herself. That's worth something. It, huh. it is. I'm not saying that that justifies the project. It, it, that's absolutely not what I'm saying. But it's interesting that to her, it saved her life. We have someone else. He's, uh, uh, we actually have two people who are First Nations in our group of five. This guy's uh, also full blood Cree. He um, has three really successful businesses, multi-million dollar businesses in the heart of the oil sands. And every weekend he dresses up in drag and comes and does karaoke. <laughs> He's a, a full on drag queen. And yet he lives in the roughest arguably one of the roughest places in North America. You'd think he'd get killed if he just walks on the street. And he has had, you know, a fair bit of trauma, but he's one of the toughest, most courageous people I've ever met. And so, and he sings beautifully. All these people, they just sing like birds. One guy in particular, I mean, he's going to be famous. He's such a good singer. So that's what the movie's about. We're having a riot doing it, and it's going to hopefully be on the festival circuit this spring. Um, and then it's going to be on television, and, and uh, it's... Um, it's another film that has been made by a very, very small number of people. There, were, It's a documentary, uh, a feature documentary. But I mean, the crew was two, sometimes three people. That's it. That's what the new equipment has done. And wait till you see it. I mean, it looks like the commitments. It sounds very interesting. <laughs> and I got to tell you, my own personal beef with drag queens is that they're always so good looking and I'm always so jealous of their legs. <laughs> Honestly, wait till you see uh, Isis's legs. I mean, she's got the most beautiful legs. When I first saw her, when she walked into the bar, I just turned, I did like a triple take. She's just so striking looking. Uh, I say she because when, when she dresses up in drag, you, you would dress her as she. And when right, she's, yeah. see, it was interesting though. My wife and I worked together, uh, Tina and, and I, and when I talked to Isis the first time on the phone, uh, you know, I'd spoken to her the night before in the club and I said, you know what we're doing and you're interested and blah, blah, blah. Got the phone number, called her the next day. And so early on in the call, like right at the very beginning, I said, um, oh, oh, um, should I be calling you he or she? Like I was really uncertain about it. And uh, she said, well, it depends what I'm wearing. So I said, what are you wearing? And I had to, <laughs> that's up to my wife. She's going, is this telephone sex? What's going on? <laughs> It's not what it sounds like, I swear. So anyway, the movie, it's, it's wild. It's, it's just so much fun, and yet it's kind of bittersweet. It's just massively entertaining. Though on our last show, uh, Peace Out, it was also uh, it was very strongly about the environment. But, you know, at the end of it, you basically felt like going home and slashing wrists. And, <laughs> and this one, you don't. You just don't. You go... This is a complex problem and there are things that we can do, but the first thing we need to do is to start talking to each other. Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that sounds very interesting. We're, we're definitely going to look forward to uh, seeing that. Yeah. So. And keep keep yeah. our eyes open for it. That won't be hard with that name. No. No, <laughs> no. I'm telling you we're having the time of our lives. So it's, I've, I've been a musician since I was three, and I get, get to actually do background tracks on it and even some vocals. I'm having so much fun. I shouldn't be getting paid for this. I really should. <laughs> and I mean, that's a good note to close on is, is that, like I said earlier, if you find the thing that you, you like doing and that you fit doing, it just makes your life so intensely happy. And I just don't feel like I'm going to work. I got to camp 30 days this last summer. Fine. Yeah, uh, so this is the job for me. <laughs> now, did we catch where everyone can find you and your upcoming events and your work online? Thank you. CharlesWilkinson.com. One word, no spaces, no caps. And the, the, I need to update it. It hasn't been updated for a bit, but uh, especially since the release of the, of the new book. There's also another book coming out that's called Peace Out. It's based on our last movie that's coming from Red Deer Press in the fall. And if I get busy. And so, uh, yeah, uh, CharlesWilkinson.com. Okay, that's great. Well, thank you oh, again oh, for chatting. Oh. One more thing, and that is, is that Peace Out, our last documentary, is opening um, just before Earth Day on, on iTunes, uh, uh, North America-wide. So Peace Out is available from iTunes as of April 16th. That sounds oh, like great. a really good one to catch, too, I have yeah, to say. Yeah, check it out. It's, it's super interesting. 
All right. Well, thank you again thank so you. much for chatting with us. It's been a, a real blast. So, um, it's fun. You guys are really easy to talk to. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Can I say one more thing? Sure, oh, sure. please. That, that, that is when you asked how to contact me. Another great way to contact is to go to michaelweezypress.com. Uh, Michael Weezy Press is the publisher, the wonderful publisher of the book, and they've just got the best movie books anywhere. Like it's just a plethora of awesome information, and they're a great publisher. But Michael Weezy Press is definitely worth checking out. Great. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. Yes, it has really. Thanks so much, you guys. Bye, Julia. Bye, Marks. Hi, I'm John Rogers. I created the show Leverage and wrote Transformers, and you're listening to Genretainment. Well, thanks to Charles for chatting with us, and we wish him luck with Oil Sands Karaoke and other future projects. So that's it for today's Genretainment. Check back next week with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. Including a very fun interview with Jerry Kokich, one of the stars of the action comedy web series Adventures of Super 7. And soon after that, we'll have writer Christopher Vogler on the show discussing his book, The Writer's Journey, Mythic Structure for Writers. We also have a special episode coming up this Sunday where Marks and Ian speak with Robert Leeshock, who many of you may remember as Ian Kincaid on Earth Final Conflict. And he'll be telling us about his movie and development, God Machine. And don't forget, you can check out all of our past episodes in the archives at scifipulseradio.com. You can also check out the other great shows on this channel like SFP Now, The Roundtable, and Jeff Trick. Genretainment will be back right here on this channel next week. Thanks to everyone for listening. Until, Until next, next time. time.